I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hello, and we are back for another edition of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. This is Mike Sealski from the Philadelphia Inquirer, joined as usual by Dave Murphy. Of the Who is currently Daily trying News. to mix a yogurt with a protein bar because our awesome, awesome vending machine at the office did not have spoons. So you introduced our guest while I try to mix my blueberry Chobani with this uh, Kellogg's protein bar. Are you going to mix it or are you going to use it as like a like a dip, like as if you, you were dipping a pretzel into onion dip? I'm going to make these two food items, these two foodstuffs, <laughs> go into my digestive system using only themselves and my hands. We need Kern back here to discuss. What we need know, is we need is Jack food. in the Box yogurt and tacos. Yeah, Jack, we got two Jack. We got two Jacks in the box right now. <laughs> anyway, we're going to start the show uh, by talking with uh, a guy who spent I guess I'm, I'm guessing about a week, maybe four or five days recently in the Dominican Republic, uh, learning about the Phillies uh, new academy there and is turning out just a terrific series of stories uh, for the Inquirer and the Daily News uh, about this and, and how the Phillies are helping basically their international scouting uh, apparatus uh, get updated and get elite with respect to the rest of Major League Baseball. And that's uh, the Inquirer and Daily News' beat writer, Matt Gelb. Hey, Matt, how you doing? I'm good, guys. I brought back a cold from the Dominican, a head cold. I'm hoping it's not uh, anything worse than that, but uh, it was a very eye-opening trip. All right, so how so? How was it eye-opening? Well, you know, as somebody who's covered Major League Baseball for the last six years or so, uh, I've sort of always gravitated toward the, the, the Latinos in the Phillies clubhouse just because I've always sensed that they have a greater appreciation for uh, being in the majors for making the money they're making. And, and, and I assume that, you know, it was because of their perspective. I mean, they came from different backgrounds than, than uh, baseball players who were, who were born in the United States and went to high school or went to college to get to the majors. But after going to the Dominican, uh, I, I totally understand it. And it was, it was, uh, it was great perspective uh, to see you know, sort of the, the poverty of, of this country uh, contrasted with some of the resources that major league teams have devoted down there and the bonuses that are uh, going to these kids uh, and 16-year-olds. Uh, and it, it was striking. And the fact that uh, the Phillies are now finally, not to say the Phillies haven't invested in Dominican before, but you know, they were not spending nearly as much or, or investing as much time and effort uh, staffing-wise to their foreign and international operations as other teams were, uh, they've changed that strategy, you know, and, and, and it's, it's pretty clear. I mean, they've, they've had good successes uh, with less. I mean, I think that's why ownership before was kind of looking the other way. They're like, well, look, you know, we've gotten guys to the major leagues, even without spending a lot of money. So let's just have them keep doing what they're doing and everything is fine. But the system has changed a lot and more and more teams are just throwing money down there, throwing money at these players. And so uh, the Phillies are, are a little more invested now. Well, we're in, we're you're in the midst of a four part series. I believe part three um, was today on on Philly.com, and and the first two parts are obviously up there as well. Can you, in a nutshell, for those who have yet to uh, 
delve into the lengthy, lengthy amount of uh, reporting that you've done on the topic. Can you, in a nutshell, summarize or surmise what exactly is the thrust of your piece, where the Phillies are in terms of their financial investment now compared to where they were before, and what you saw and what you will kind of lay out in words over the part of this, over the course of this four-part series over these next few days? Yeah, I mean, it kind of breaks down into four different themes. The first theme was, the first story was about scouting. And really, everything that the Phillies and any team does in the Dominican is solely based on how good, how smart, how uh, uh, connected uh, their scouts on the ground in the Dominican and Venezuela and Cuba. That That is basically the thrust of every international operation now. You know, money is very important, obviously, but this is a place, as I wrote, I think that uh, analytics doesn't really have much of a reach in the Dominican Republic. There are no formal leagues. Uh, there is very, there are no numbers to go on. There, there. I'm sure you could apply general principles of, of analytics uh, to anything, but they're really trusting their scouts here. And I wrote the first story about Sal Gustinelli, who's been the Phillies' uh, head of international scouting uh, for the last two decades, basically. Uh, and about how they've sort of done less with more, but that they're going to start taking a little more, a little more risks. They're going to start uh, giving out some bigger bonuses uh, rather than just be uh, bargain hunters, effectively, is what they were for a better part of a decade. That was the first story. The second story uh, is solely about uh, their development and this $9 million uh, facility they built in the Dominican that opened last month and quite frankly, is better than their complex in Clearwater right now, uh, which was which was hard to believe and when I went down there and saw it. And uh, they they put a lot of money into this, and it's an interesting strategy in that uh, baseball has always looked at it in a way: if you're a minor league player, you're supposed to pay your dues. You're supposed to uh, grind it out. You're not paid a lot of money. Uh, you don't get any big league luxuries until you reach the big leagues, but now that the currency in Major League Baseball, these young uh, players, before they get to their earning peak, the, they're the, that's where the most production is coming from. Teams are like, well, maybe we should be making our young players in the minor leagues more comfortable and making them happier and trying to uh, you know, do everything we can to make them better players quicker. And that's what the Phillies have done here with the Dominican with this facility. The third part that is online on philly.com today is about how you know, education in the Dominican Republic is, is, is not good. And these guys who want to be professional baseball players are usually quitting school by the time they're 13, sometimes 14, uh, to pursue baseball full-time. They, they latch on to a, a trainer or call it in the Dominican Republic who sort of, uh, you know, teaches them baseball and gets them in front of the big league scouts that, a lot of these guys are coming up to, you know, the guys who do leave the island and get a chance to play in the minor leagues in the States, they, they're just not as developed or advanced mentally, uh, educationally, as, as the American prospects are. And that was a problem. It is a problem. and It's still a problem. The Phillies have decided that about three years ago they started offering a high school diploma uh, to their kids at the, at the academy in the Dominican, and they've really expanded it. Uh, they're looking to expand it more. I wrote about a graduation ceremony that happened last month with 12 players, 11 coaches and one player. And it was an unbelievable 
uh, ceremony. I've, I've covered baseball for seven years. I don't think I've quite ever been around something as powerful as this graduation ceremony was with these 50 players chanting and cheering and jumping up and down as each one of their teammates is crossing the stage and in uh, a black gown and cap getting his high school diploma. And, you know, sir, there are altruistic reasons for the Phillies to want to educate these guys. A lot of them are never going to even leave the island to play baseball. They'll not never step foot in Citizens Bank Park, and the Phillies are being good citizens by educating some of these guys. But if there's a prospect you think is going to be good, you know, it behooves you to educate him. I mean, baseball is, is, is requires a lot of thought, a lot of thinking on the fly, too. And if you can develop a player's cognitive skills as well as his physical skills, why not? And they put some money into that. And now the fourth part, which will be online tomorrow, will be Mostly about Sixto Sanchez, who is their one of their best pitching prospects, sort of came out of nowhere last season, uh, has really moved up some charts of the people who evaluate prospects in baseball, but really how he's a, he fits into a larger picture of what is one of their strengths right now. All these foreign arms that are in the low levels of the minors who throw really, really hard. And some of these guys are going to make it. Some of them won't make it. Some of them will be traded. Some of them will be released. Some of them will be Phillies, but it's a strength for them right now and, and that they're going to probably deal from that strength in the coming years and, and then also take advantage of it perhaps on their own roster. So to, to put this in perspective, Matt, you thought you had what I thought was an incredible anecdote in the second part of this series. You, you led with it. It's in the paper today. It's online on philly.com, which is about, uh, you know, Sal Gastinelli um, toting hundreds of pounds of weights that he had purchased at Modell's sporting goods store uh, on his trips abroad because that was kind of the bare bones nature of what the Phillies had 20 years ago in terms of a, a uh, outreach abroad to try to find prospects. Could you kind of set the scene for us in that regard and how far the, where the Phillies were then and how far they've come since? Yeah, and often that story is funny because when I was down there, uh, Augustinelli FaceTimed Carlos Ruiz, who, of course, was maybe the greatest success the Phillies have or will ever have uh, in the international market, signed for $8,000 and became, uh, you know, one of the greatest catchers in franchise history and caught the final pitch of a World Series. And Sal was showing Carlos the, the new facility through his, through his iPhone. And it was like, oh, my, you know, they were telling, he was telling, they were each telling stories. And, and Sal was saying, you know, remember when, remember when you used to sleep under the bleachers at, at, the, at the old complex in La Vega? And they laughed about it. And, and, and look, I mean, this is not just a Philly. A large amount of teams have just dumped a ton of money into their Dominican operations. And in one aspect, and I've noted this in the story, the Phillies are really just keeping up in some regards with other teams. I mean, they, they almost had to build this facility. They didn't have to build a $9 million one with uh, the crazy uh, features and, 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 uh, and uh, conveniences and luxuries available to the players, but they had to do something. Uh, they had been leasing land in each of the last uh, 18, 19 years or so. They bought this land. They owned the facility. Uh, they had to sort of catch up to the rest of baseball uh, in that regard, but it, it's, it's changed immensely. And when I walked into the weight room uh, with Sal, this weight room that is bigger than one uh, that's in Clearwater, he just, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't believe it. I mean, he really couldn't believe it. And he, he literally built this thing uh, from the ground up 
bringing the weights from America to the Dominican Republic and, and, and supplying his own weight room. Uh, it's, it's amazing what they've done in the last two decades. If you think about some of the players they've signed, and I've noted this, you know, three, four, three fifths of their infield, current infield, Azar Hernandez was signed for $49,000. Freddie Gallus was signed for $90,000. Michael Franco was signed for $100,000. You spent less than $250,000 to sign what is currently three-fifths of your infield. And I know people have different opinions on those players, but they turn into major league players who have been productive in some sense or different senses uh, before they reach free agency. So I guess and the- I know it sounds capitalistic and horrible in some sense, but – that's amazing. I mean, that's amazing what they've been able to do there. Capitalism well, you, is not you, horrible, yeah, first of all. <laughs> you got to keep in mind you're talking well, okay, to uh, I mean, well, you're talking to a guy he, who used to fantasize about asking Ayn Rand to the prom in high school. That is not true. That is not true. But Paul, Paul Ryan can <laughs> I, be my saying, homie anytime. It can be it, it's capitalism in the right word, but it can be cold. I and mean, we're talking about uh, you know uh, the you know the colonizing effectively to, yeah. to yeah. these Dominicans and Venezuelans, but. Uh, you know, those guys have been provided tremendous opportunities and they're making millions of dollars now, but their initial investment that the Phillies made on those guys uh, was, was very small. So the, I guess the natural question is, given the return on investment of even, you know, one of those guys that you mentioned, I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars of yeah. profit that they realized on, you know, a, a you know $100,000 investment in Michael Franco just so far. Why it just blows my mind that you would put it this way. The Phillies at one point gave $10 million or $5 million to Danny Baez. <laughs> what is the argument? What was the argument against investing $5 million in a facility that did not force Carlos Ruiz to sleep underneath the bleachers? And again, I realize that's, you know, a, a Panamanian we're talking about, but why did it take them so long? And what was the argument against kind of this minimal investment that could have gotten a lot of bang for your buck. Well, Dave, I think I've, you've seen it. I mean, you know, owners try to keep costs down where they can. And this is not just a Phillies example. I mean, owners across baseball try to keep their costs on amateur players as low as they possibly can. And I don't know if, it, if you want to call it collusion or what you want to call it, but uh, teams didn't necessarily want to be the ones who broke the norm. There's no team right now that wants to, pay a minor league player a, a higher livable wage, a minimum salary, uh, because they don't want to be the they don't want to be the ones to raise the cost for everyone else. And they don't want to, and everyone else is pressuring them to not raise the cost. Amateur costs are so low, have been so low for so long that owners just didn't mess with it. And you saw a couple teams start to put a little more money uh, internationally. They saw a competitive advantage there. And other teams have now followed suit. It's just sort of you need one team to do it, and the Phillies were never going to be that one team that broke the mold and decided to put uh, a huge investment uh, into uh, something like an international operation. They were always you know, following the pack, uh, following Major League Baseball's rules and, and guidelines, but I think you've seen uh, a change in ownership, a change in the front office structure that has them a little more willing to take some chances especially right now when it comes to infrastructure and amateur-related and development-related costs because they are, they are spending less on the big league roster right now. So what you're saying is that a, 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 if you give the capitalists free reign and eliminate all regulations, they will absolutely look out for their workers and do what's in their best interest, correct? 
Uh, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm being facetious. Yeah. I mean, baseball could do it because they had an antitrust like, exemption and little to no oversight. Um, and I think that's a lot of people's wet dream in America now to go back to those days, uh, countrywide. So that's a little it's good, editorial. It's good we're not going no, too far look, afield. They, they didn't. They didn't need to spend this money on the on the on these players. Look. Right, but there absolutely was okay, collusion there's, there's, in terms of, of... No, he didn't say that. Yes, he did. He used the word collusion. He said, I don't know if you want to call it collusion. I, I want to call it collusion. I want to call it having an antitrust exemption where you are not subject to the same market forces as the rest of a competitive capitalistic environment, Mike. Go ahead, Matt. No, no, you absolutely are not. And that's, and the interesting part of the facility story now is that is that, look, there is now a harder cap the owners wanted the international draft. They didn't get that, and they wanted the international draft. Why? So they could keep the cost down internationally. I mean, bonuses had started to get crazy. Teams, the Padres last year, their international signing period ended up spending seventy million. That's seven wow. zero seventy million on international player bonuses plus the taxes they had to pay for going over there. They probably spent about thirty million on actual bonuses, and then forty million on the taxes that they incurred. Uh, and other owners were, were like, whoa, this is, this is not, this is not what we want. We want an international draft where we know how much, you know, we're going to pay every year. They didn't get a draft. They did get a hard salary cap effectively on amateur bonuses internationally. And that makes the facility even more interesting. I think as I wrote, the Phillies had planned this thing before the hard cap was instituted, but you know, okay. Every team has effectively four and a half five million dollars to spend every year on international amateurs they cannot exceed that they can trade for a little more of it but it's harder to trade it's harder to exceed there's not even a tax you you cannot exceed the cap so if the money is going to be more equal in certain situations for a player because there are going to be fewer there's going to be less flexibility for teams to make a bigger offer uh, unless they really like a guy and they're going to give them their whole bonus allotment for one year if the, if the money is, is closer in more instances, so how are you going to sell a player then? Well, you can sell them on your coaching. You can sell them on uh, your education, your, your facilities, uh, your success rate. Uh, you, you try to make relationships with the parents, the, the scouts, the agents. Uh, but the facility may end up having an unintended consequence where you have sort of like a college recruiting-like process here. Uh, you know, the money is going to be more equal across the board. Now, money will still be the most important thing to a 16-year-old player and his family, but if they bring him over to the facility, show him what they can offer him, because these kids live at the facility, the, the academy, uh, that might change some things. How uh, how did the idea for the series come about, Matt, and how, how did you go about doing it? How, how long were you in the Dominican? How long did it take you to report it and write it, all that, all that stuff? Well, the idea for the series came about probably last, April or March, uh, when I had heard that the Phillies were, were had bought the land for the facility, they were con- they were in construction on the academy. It was originally supposed to be done in September, and uh, I was going to go uh, with Sal Gusnelli in September <laughs> to see the facility. I wanted to I wanted to see what life was like down there because it has become such an important uh, place for baseball. The most foreign players. Most foreign-born players in baseball come from the Dominicans. About 10% last year of all active major league players were Dominican-born. Uh, it is an important arena for teams now to find talent, 
and their the stakes are sort of raising. There's more money being invested. So I thought it would be a really interesting series. He really wanted me to come down because he wanted me to show it. He wanted to show it to me, which, which sounded great. The construction kept getting delayed, delayed, delayed. And finally, they, they're going to go down in January to check it out. End up being uh, a big trip because the Phillies ended up sending almost their entire front office. Uh, a lot of important people who had never been to the Dominican before, uh, who who wanted to go down there to see what their investment looked like, and and really it just shows that they are uh, they are they are a little more invested now in this down there, and it is going to be something that they uh, that they rely on. The uh, the last big Dominican signing was Jalen Ortiz in 2015. I think he's their their record holder, correct? Um, yeah, they had never spent more than a million dollars on a on a Latino uh, amateur until they signed Ortiz for four million. Uh, he was he was he's he's the biggest one they've had, and it's not even close. Well, to, so 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 to zoom in a little bit on the on the concrete, you know, what does this mean for a Phillies fan? Uh, 2016. That was his first year in the in the uh, organization, correct? Ortiz. Last year was his first year in the state, so he played. He probably played in the Dominican in 2015. Uh, but last year was his first year actually in the United States. And he hit, according to Baseball Reference, um, in the Gulf Coast League, which is rookie league at the age of 17, hit 231, 325, 434, so 758 OPS with uh eight home runs in, in 173 at bats, which is clearly um, something impressive. What, what have you heard about him? Where is he going to go this year? Um, is he what they thought, you know, they signed a year earlier? What has his progression been like? Yeah, I mean, he's, look, he played last year in the Gulf Coast League when he was 17. He's basically high school senior. And uh, he was playing against guys who are a lot older than him. Did he strike out a lot? Yeah. Did he hit for a low batting average? Yeah. He hit eight home runs, though, and they bought power when they bought this guy. I mean, they that was what the bonus was for. Uh, they saw a guy who could be, you know, an elite power hitter in Major League Baseball. There's a lot of questions about his body. Uh, he's he's starting to fill out. Again, he's, you know, he's basically a high school senior. Uh, I saw him when I was in the Dominican. He does look a little more... Uh, leaner i guess is i don't know if i'd say leaner is the best but he he looks he looks like he's in better shape he's not turning into pablo sandoval no no we're not talking about he wasn't out of shape but i think they were they were they were concerned uh they they still think he can stick in a corner outfield spot and now there will be scouts who saw him last year in the golf post league who i talked to you say yeah i'm not sure he might be a first baseman and that honestly would uh, you know, decreases his future value, but they they think he can stick in the outfield. And I'm going to guess that he starts the season in extended spring training. Uh, it would be really aggressive to push him to Lakewood at the beginning of the year next year. My guess is he plays in extended spring training and then goes to Williamsport uh, when that league starts in July and plays in Williamsport for the for the final half of the season. And now, and now the international uh, signing, for, for, I mean, it's kind of a convoluted system, uh, for those, for, for those who are not – dumb it down for those of us who are not completely aware. Where are the Phillies at right now in terms of this year's signing class? It resets, I believe, on July 2nd. Um, who are the names we should know, the, the salaries they're talking about? You know, just catch us up on the hot – the Dominican hot stove. <laughs> well, they 
I think they're still sort of figuring out how it's all going to work. I mean, a lot of teams are, are curious to see what other teams do if they, you know, because again, every team basically has the same amount of money to spend in their signing period, which begins July 2nd, 2017. And they're looking to see if one, if teams are going to blow their whole four and a half million on one guy, if they're going to uh, just try to buy as many guys as they can on lower bonuses. You know, they've looked at a couple kids uh, whose names have not been mentioned yet because they're not, you know, technically they're not allowed to work out deals until July 2nd. Uh, and now this is the reason for the convoluted system is that no, no team follows those rules. But Major League Baseball has started to get a little uh, a little more stringent on the rules. The Boston Red Sox just got pummeled uh, last year by Major League Baseball for some rules violations for agreeing to deals ahead of time or for packaging kids together to get a better deal on another kid. Uh, it's still the wild, wild west pretty much. Uh, let's just say that they have some deals worked out. It's actually, it... Uh, it appears they have some deals. They're close to some deals and that they're targeting some of the kids who are, who scouts consider or who some of the evaluators consider at the top of the class. Nice. It's, it's actually, I would, I would expect them to, I would expect them to sign a kid for more than a million in this, in this signing period. Uh, they're, they're going to spend more than $1 million on, on one of the, one kid. It sounds like, sure. it sounds to me like, you know, a little more than you're letting on there, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's certain things that I can report no, I and can't report. I couldn't confirm certain things. I understand. It's a, it really is. I mean, and, and so this is all just fake news. Then. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's a, it's really it, actually if you look at it, it's just a fa- it's a fascinating, uh, you know, microcosm slash model of like the regulatory state and just how like you you mentioned the word unintended consequences, Matt. Just like how you can put whatever rules in place and. You know, the system is going to adapt to those rules in ways like you were mentioned packaging. I mean, we saw this with the Astros and the draft when they, you know, that whole crazy thing with with uh, what's his name, you know, when they didn't sign him because they packaged him with somebody else. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Casey Close's guys. It's like you said, it's a Wild West, but it's like the Wild West. Uh, I don't know. It's, just, it's like what the Wild West would become if you like all of a sudden tried to make it not the Wild West, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like Jesse James ain't just like going away. No, and I think I think that's that's why the Phillies have sort of looked at it from a different perspective. Is that there's more money? Other teams are putting a lot more money and resources in this, and they have to ask themselves, why aren't we doing this? And now it was easier in the last two years for them to put more money into it because in the old system, if you had a bad record, you had a larger bonus pool to spend. Right. right. Uh, so they could spend a little more. They could take a few more risks. But I mean, look until they sign. Uh, Luis Encarnacion, who's the first baseman who has, who has not done well, they signed him for a million dollars uh, in 2013, I want to say. Uh, you know, they had never even come close to a million dollar signing bonus. It was just something they didn't do. I mean, Sal Gusnelli's budget for many of those years was, was half, of, half of that, half of a million dollars. And, uh, you know, as, as the market, you know, as the market dictated higher signing bonuses, the Phillies uh, started to react to it, and, and, and very much a lot of this is reactionary. I don't think they would deny that, uh, but they're now looking at it different ways and trying to figure out how they can be ahead of it. And uh, their scouting team has done pretty well uh, considering the, the disadvantages they were at, and, and you wonder how they'll do now if they're sort of uh, even or maybe even 
a little uh, above even some of these other teams. All right, well, listen, Matt. Um, thank you very much. Get some rest because we, Murph and I don't want to get sick when we see you in Clearwater. So it's vitally important that you get healthy just for our sake, okay? So uh, thanks very much for joining us. You did a great job with the series, and uh, we appreciate it. Two weeks until uh, pitchers and catchers. Counting the days. Well, that was fascinating. I think we could, we could have talked ad nauseum um, about that. What was your big takeaway? No, my, my takeaway is, is kind of from an outsider's perspective because I, I haven't covered baseball. I spent a year on the baseball beat in New York and, and haven't delved into it into the depth that either you or Matt has. But what uh, struck me just kind of as a relative outsider was the way that uh, people who do not immerse themselves in day-to-day coverage or work in baseball uh, tend to think of how teams spend money. You know, the Phillies have taken a lot of heat over the last couple of years uh, for not spending money on salaries, on, on actual player salaries, this idea that they're going to dial back money uh, and not go after big-name free agents yet. And if you listen to certain radio stations and all that, they take a lot of heat for that. I'm sure you get emails the same way I do from people. Why aren't they spending money? They're a big market team, et cetera, et cetera. And you forget that, well, there are other resources where they, sh- they can and probably ought to put some of that money. And, and this, to me, was a long time coming. I mean, you know, it's too, that, that, that area of the world is too great, a, too baseball rich for any major league team to not pour major resources into it. And the Phillies, it seems to me, waited longer than most, you know, for some of the reasons that you guys discussed. Um, but it's, it's a long time coming, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting if you look at while Matt was – I'd also like to say I did successfully eat that yogurt, as you noticed, I did. throughout I the did. entire interview. It was quite a thing to see the way – you, you were taking – what was that? Like a, it looked like a, a candy bar. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a protein bar. Protein it bar. It was a uh, special special keg, Kellogg's. Yeah, and uh, like I said, using it as like half spoon, half pretzel right. to, to dip. But it, if was, you no- it was if, interesting. If you, no- if you noticed, I got – I really wasn't paying I, that much attention I to I finished the protein eating. bar – with yogurt with like to spare. half a yogurt left and thus no utensils so i was left with this while matt was in the middle of an answer i was left kind of like figuring out how what would macgyver do <laughs> and i had a thing of hummus and little pretzel chips so my first thought was i could use one of the pretzel chips to kind of like scoop the rest of the yogurt out mm-hmm. um, but instead i fashioned a spoon out of the tin foil lid on the chobani yogurt and i Use that to scoop the rest of the yogurt into my mouth, and I think I minimized the waste. I, I'm actually quite uh, quite impressed with myself. Yeah, anything short of you just sticking your face into the cup of yogurt or scooping it out with your bare hands, I was cool with. I, I didn't pay nah, that this much th- attention. This also raises a question that I'm stunned we have not discussed discussed yet on this podcast, and that's it's 2017 in America, and we're still eating yogurt out of a plastic tub. When I, I would think that we could have found a more convenient, efficient way to get this kind of viscosic solid, viscous, viscous solid, uh, well, they you do know, into like, my mouth. I know well, they, they have, do have yogurt shakes. I mean, and, but they have like yogurt packages. Yeah. Like, why not like in a, a Capri Sun package? Why is that not the standard? Well, they do. My my. Right, but I'm saying, son, why is that not standard? I don't know. My I mean, five year old son eats. We call them yogurt sticks, and you just rip off the yeah. top and suck them down. That would have made my life a lot easier. I mean, is there something about the process of 
peeling open the... the uh, you would have to ask the CEO of Chobani, I would think. I, I don't have the answer to that one. Adult Gogurt, I think, might be my that next... That might be the way uh, to go. Might be yeah, the way I mean, to we've go. made, like... We've gotten to a point in American civilization where we have made the... We should we have, all just eat like astronauts. I mean, we've optimized the tortilla chip for scooping salsa. Yeah. And yet we're still, like, cavemen. Old habits die hard, Eating bro. yogurt. I tell you? We've even, we've even optimized yogurt. Yogurt cultures. Now we are eating Greek yogurt yeah. cultures rather than, you know, whatever, whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever the former ones yeah, were. Madison, Wisconsin yogurt cultures, um, I guess. Anyway, it, it, while I was doing all of that, I was also looking up. Because uh, you're a multitasker. I am a multitasker. I was also really bored with your questions. No, I'm just kidding. Thanks. Um, I, was I look- talked less than either of you guys did. Come on. Uh, yeah, maybe. We let Matt. We turned the, we turned the floor over to Matt. We did. Uh, I was looking up the highest bonuses ever paid um, to two international players and mm-hmm. uh, Jalen Ortiz is fifth at 4.01 million this is of course amateur guys this is not like you uh, Darvish or, right. or anybody like that um, but if you look at their numbers I I would have thought that there was a lot there would be a lot more um, risk involved or, or a lot more risk on investment I guess mm-hmm. but but dude these guys have you're looking at Nomar Mazzara who last year as a 21-year-old rookie, OPS 739 hmm. for the Rangers. He was a guy, if you'll remember, when the Phillies were involved in those Cole Hamels talks, right. he was one of those untouchables yeah. um, that the Phillies wanted. Then you have, of, of course, Miguel Sano for the Twins, who in his first two years in the majors at the age of 20, going into his 24-year-old season, has an 835 career OPS. That ain't bad. Nope, with 43 home runs. That is not bad at all. Then you have Gary Sanchez, who at 23 years old was a big reason why the, the Yankees the, were not a bloated body in the Hudson last year. I mean, that was one of the more incredible stories in the game last year. He hit 299 with a 1,032 OPS. And get this. I didn't realize his numbers were this high. 20 home runs in 201 at-bats. That's crazy. That's like Roger Maris. That's on pace. That's Roger Maris over a course of... yeah. 600, a, a 600 at bat season, um, and we thought Tommy Joseph was all that in a bag cra- of cheers. We thought he was cray. Um, <laughs> then you have Jairo Barras, Barras, um, who was in the Rangers again. Mm-hmm. Or, see, the Rangers, I think, yeah, have showed showed you why you know all those years Phillies fans were clamoring for the organization to spend more. Uh, they're kind of now the Rangers are case in point. Why? Yeah, Jairo Barras at High Desert. In the California League, which is like playing on the moon, admittedly, <laughs> um, had an eight seventeen OPS last year. Yeah, that's that's uh, might be. Um, and then your boy help. for the Mets, my the, boy for the Mets, the Angel Gabriel Yanoa. Oh yeah, yes, he's yes, your yes. boy because you used to write about the Mets. I did six years ago, back when Jason Bay and Jeff Francoeur were on the team. Is that Bay B A Y or Bay B E Y, like the kids say? Like I mean, Jason B A E. Jason my Bay. <laughs> oh, it's B A E. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, anyway, all of these guys really lived up the expectations in the minors. They did. So if you're the Phillies, you have to feel good about, you know, the investment you made in your kid. Plus, they have some really, really, really great names. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about Adonis Cardona. Like Adonis. And yeah. he's like one of many Adonises. All we need is a Hector and an Achilles and, you know. Oh, uh, who's the guy? Is there a Samson in there? I'm sure there is. But who's the guy? Well, you know, that. I mean... Latin American culture. Oh, it's awesome. They love the cat. They love yes the Pope. 
Yes, they do. Are you watching that at all on HBO? I'm not. I'm not. You I don't should. get HBO. You would. You would. Uh, I don't get HBO. You know what I watch all day, Mark? You would, you would be you. calling into the 700 I, Club enraged because it is the most <laughs> blasphemous. It is First the of most, all, the 700 Club doesn't have anything to do with Catholicism. It doesn't. No. Who's what is it? That's Pat Robertson. That's, so which one's the Catholic one? There's a Catholic 700 Club. I watch it sometimes at late at night. It's awesome. <laughs> I don't. I'm glad you're watching it for both of us. It's like the Catholic. You know what I'm watching? I have two kids under the age of six. I'm watching Peppa Pig. I'm watching Blaze and the Monster Machines. I'm watching Is that a pot Peter head? Rabbit. Is that a pothead show? No. Oh, okay. these, are, these are cartoons for oh, kids. Okay. So anyway, let's, let's, you know, Matt's doing a great job with the series. And if you get a chance, you should read it. Um, you know, it's it's really it's an impressive feat of reporting and writing. He's he's doing a terrific job. Yeah, I w- it's it, it's amazing. I wish we could have talked to him more about what what the Dominican Republic itself is it's actually like, like. Because yeah. me, I'm just an ignorant American who has never been south of. No, uh, you you. I mean, for most of those kids, you it's either baseball or you know you cut cane for a living until you die. I mean, that's that's basically it. So. Um, you know, with some exceptions, I suppose. Yeah, I was talking, so. I saw, um, and again, uh, to give props, the photography. Oh, David Swanson, yes. I saw David Swanson in the office a couple of days ago, and he was, before the, actually it was last week, mm-hmm. probably last Wednesday, um, and he was telling me about this series that was about to yeah. run, and there's some, there are some video elements as mm-hmm. well that yes. you would be wise to check out, but he, uh, David Swanson, great Inquirer photographer, has shot many a spring training uh, down in Clearwater. I was kind of peppering him on mm-hmm. what... Like, but what's it like? Yeah, what's it like? Like, I, I can't picture the Dominican. I can't picture being there. Right. You know, like, uh, like I'm the typical ignorant American. Where I just like picture everybody like riding cows through the street <laughs> and stuff like that. You know, um, I mean, it's like, well, I mean, it's that, like that would be ignorant. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like Pedro Martinez used to talk about, uh, you know, he would spend all day sitting under a, uh, <laughs> I forget what fruit he said, like guava tree or something uh-huh. like, you know, and like that's just the image. That's the right. only image I have, okay. uh, firsthand image of. The Dominican Republic, I have him. He, he was the best, by the way. Yeah, he was great. He was great. To hey, talk man, to. I used to spend, you know, seven years ago, I was sitting under the uh, papaya tree, you know, and now I'm in the World Series. <laughs> and now you make him sound like, uh, a, you know, what's, what was that French skunk from the. Uh, I do one ac- I do one accent. That's my Northeast Philly accent, <laughs> too. Um, That's good. So, what what right. else are we going to talk about? So here's. All right. So. I've got all these printouts here. Yeah. You Let's talk out. about your column. Okay. Tower Loans? Yes. Uh, you say. According to the person who wrote the headline on your column, T.O., I presume that to mean Terrell Owens. You presume correctly. Worthy of Hall for antics as much as play. Now, I'm going to guess that is not the most accurate summation of your point. Because if you are actually in this column, which I did not read, arguing that his antics deserve a place in the Hall of Fame, I'm going to disagree with you vehemently. No, what, what I argued in the column was... Uh, first of all, for his for what he did on the field, you have to start with the with the premise um, and the fact that the Pro Football Hall of Fame is different from uh, the Major League Baseball, the Baseball Hall of Fame. In that nobody cares about it. Right. Number one, nobody cares about it. Number two, off the field matters are not supposed to matter. You don't take that into consideration. That's why you know Lawrence Taylor's life, you know, drug life off the field, his addictions, whatever he does, play no role in him getting elected to the Hall of Fame. It's not supposed to have any bearing. But with respect to T.O., you know, voters on the committee could say, well, he blew up two teams. You know, he tore apart. You know, Gary Myers in the New York Daily News said this last year after the uh, the voting came in and Owens didn't get in. He basically said, like, you know, T.O. tore teams apart. There are always going to be people who don't vote for him. So on the one hand, I argue pretty clearly that 
yes, that's true, but it doesn't override the production on the field, his greatness as a wide receiver, all those sorts of things. But the bigger point I wanted to make was that Owens, in a lot of ways, was ahead of his time, even if you just focus on that summer of 2005 when everybody watched him doing the sit-ups in the driveway and antagonizing Andy Reid and Donovan McNabb and Brad Childress and all that stuff, in that, you know, that was before social media really existed. Facebook was only about a year and a half old. Twitter hadn't come along yet. Nobody was, you know, posting vines or gifts or on the internet or anything like that. Vine does not even exist anymore. Vine doesn't even exist anymore, right. So... But that, those days where the helicopters and the news vans were following T.O. from Bethlehem at Lehigh, where the Eagles were having training camp, to his house in Moorestown, and, you know, watching him, you know, exercise and shoot baskets in his driveway, like, 11 years later, he'd have done that all himself. Like, he was Antonio Brown before Antonio Brown decided to go Facebook Live while Mike Tomlin was talking. And in that regard, that's the thing people should remember him for. Like, people will think of him as a disruptive influence who may have cost the Eagles a chance to get back to the Super Bowl in 2005. And yeah, that's true. But when you think of T.O., you think of all the stuff he did, particularly in that summer. And that's, if he's going to have a legacy, quote-unquote, that's his legacy. It's like he was the forerunner of what we see now out of so many athletes in the NFL, the NBA, etc., I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at my memory bank of Terrell Owens moments. <laughs> there were plenty. That was a fun year and a half. I mean, it really was. When I, he was what I'm was. laughing at is thinking about Terrell Owens with access to uh, his own medium. Yeah. Because he, I mean, this poor guy had, when he was Antonio Brown's age, he had to schedule an interview on a little watched uh, television program with, I believe, a college student. Um <laughs> To get his message out That's there right. that he wanted to destroy the Eagles. That's right. What was the oh uh, the, the kid? Uh, he's he's got like he's, he's got his own show on like he's got his own show on like uh, like FS Seven. Yeah, uh, oh God, I that can't. plays on like you know it's like when Comcast canceled Breakfast on Broad, they're either gonna play that or right. the uh, you know a replay of the a, Roomba the Roomba infomercial. <laughs> yeah, or a replay of a Delaware James Madison football game from 2014. I watched one actually. I watched it's one of those shows that's just like on sometimes. Yeah. And the one I remember, Graham Bensinger was the Graham Bensinger. That's and he was like uh, he also was ahead of his time. Yeah, absolutely. He was like he was like the little go getter who Mm -hmm. um, harnessed the power of do it yourself media in college. And I think I think he was a college student at the time that To appeared on his show. Uh, But you know now all To would have had to done is turn on Facebook Live. Right. Exactly. Who knows what would have happened? Um, I would argue Terrell Owens. Is a Hall of Famer just because he was ahead of his time as a as a receiver. dominant possession receiver, mm-hmm. um, it, and was putting up numbers. I mean, he was putting up Julio Jones. He was Julio Jones before Julio yes. Jones, essentially. Yes. Uh, a he never played with a great quarterback apart from that one year with. Don, I, I I mean, he played with Steve Young. I think a few years, maybe. a little bit, very. But little. it was him, Jeff yeah. Garcia, and McNabb. McNabb and was was uh, Tony Romo then? I guess, mm-hmm. but. I mean, 2000 for the Niners. And this is, this, again, this is a NFL where you're still running 50% of the time. Right. And, and there yeah. are rules that the favor, explosion favor the defensive not, backs yeah, when you're playing Yeah, the explosion in like, passing hadn't happened yet. He was a phys- I remember the first time Terrell Owens came to Philly when he signed his contract and had his press conference. 
And the guy just looked like a horse. There's no other way to describe him. Yeah. Like he would wear these spandex uh, practice pants in practice with no shorts, and you could just like see his mu- his muscles rippling. And, yeah, and and to compare him to watch him to j- compared to what you had seen from James Thrash mm-hmm. and Todd Pinkston and Freddie Mitchell, it was like. Oh, so this is how the position is supposed to yeah, be played. That's how a guy's supposed to. But it's even more move. than that. It's uh, compare him to Jerry Rice. You know, like just physically, he was. He yeah. was. I mean, he was. I mean, who were the other great receivers in, in the year two thousand? Well, um, Marvin Harrison probably was early in yep, his career. That was early on. Um, the Rams, Isaac Bruce, I'll bet had a big year. Yeah, uh, who's also a Hall of Fame finalist this year. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 a weird thing. Like in some ways that. I like the Pro Football Hall of Fame a little more than the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, for that reason, number one, it doesn't matter as much. Number two, I do think it's easier to compare uh, eras in a way. Like, you have to take into consideration the style of play, but you never have to take into consideration, like, the size of the playing field, which, <laughs> which right. you know, in baseball has always kind of, um, kind of puzzled me. Like, w- there's so much a reliance on numbers and... Hank Aaron's 755 home runs and Ty Cobb's 4,191 hits. Um, And yet, you know, Babe Ruth hit 714 home runs playing predominantly in a ballpark where it was less than 300 feet down the right field line. Like, you know, meanwhile in in football, every single field is exactly the same size. So the numbers you would think would matter more, and yet they seem not to. Um, That was actually, 2000 was actually a great year for receivers. Uh, Torrey Holt. There you go. Was it? But again, he's more the like Rod Smith used to be. He he and Rod Smith hmm. finished second behind Torrey Holt uh, in receiving yards with sixteen hundred receiving yards. Isaac Bruce was third, as you mentioned. Um, but those guys again, they weren't like the physically like Julio Jones, AJ Green, Calvin Johnson. Um, yeah, people people bounced off Owens in a way that they right, didn't the, bounce off many receivers back then. He he kind of was way ahead of his time. Yeah. You know, I mean again, he was Julio Jones before yeah. Julio Jones was Julio Jones. Um so you say Hall of Fame and I think I I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Again, the quarterback part, um the only the only knock on him is and it's a big knock. You could argue that not only did he not win a Super Bowl, he May have yeah. self-immolated. He may have been one of the primary reasons why many of his teams did not win a Super Bowl. Although the flip side of that, if you want to argue it, is that in the one Super Bowl he did play, yeah. he was oh, the best absolutely. player on the field by a lot with with a still broken you know leg. All right, uh, so so from there, let's go into something that uh, Paul Domowitz wrote. Okay, me and my printouts here. <laughs> I am still a paper fan. I know you are I am as well. Too. Very much, very much. Um, although printing off the internet has. Uh, Appears to have taken it several steps backwards over the last. Decade. Yeah, you could read that from probably out in the parking <laughs> oh, lot. I mean, you used to be able to like click a thing that says like optimized for print, and now it's just like now, yeah. They're like response, responsive an eight, design. An eight hundred word column, you know, requires thirty five pages yeah. to be printed out. This looks like something that like uh like like you ever see an old person's cell phone where the text <laughs> me- there's like you can read like two characters per text message line. <laughs> like that's what this. Anyway, what did Damo write? Somebody's got one of those. I, I wanted to say less, but I don't think it's less. I don't but think it's some, less. I think maybe Marcus. I think Marcus has like he, like I can read Marcus's text messages from across the press. I, box. I've read less. Uh, I've read less's stories over his shoulder on his laptop. He types in like a real kind of fancy script. Like it's really? not just Times New Roman. <laughs> it's uh, it looks like something that like Chaucer, you know, like That's his awesome. handwriting would have been. You know? It's a, probably the first font that he like learned how to use on WordPerfect 2.0. <laughs> I'm you know? not going to go there. It looks very. You pretty. know who was actually? You know who was the biggest biggest text. St- 
biggest biggest text on per screen ratio of all time was a guy named Ron Reed. Oh who yeah, used to sure. Cover the uh, my God, rest God. His soul. When yeah. I was like a 19 year old intern, I could legitimately walk out of the Veterans Stadium press lounge and, and see and what he read was Ron Reed's lead. Rondo, <laughs> From, he was the man. Uh, he was so anyway. Damo wrote Paul Damo, which mm-hmm. wrote that. The Eagles, maybe the Eagles should follow the Falcons' lead mm-hmm. and take a wideout first in the NFL draft. Um, well, not just take a take a wideout, but he suggested if I if I make remember a big correctly, move. make a make a major trade to move up to get one akin to what the Falcons did to get Julio Jones. And your reaction to that is what? Boy, that's risky. Boy, oh boy, that's here's risky. the question. Here's the question. He says, would they be willing to move up again and and get once the best wide receiver in the draft, Clemson's? Mike Williams. Now, full disclosure, Paul Tomowich's daughter went to Clemson. Yeah. Uh, he is probably still on the hook for a lot of money with Clemson. <laughs> Therefore, we should I'm just You're trying tough, to be man. I'm trying to be tough. uh I'm trying to be as full disclosure. Full disclosure. As journalistic as possible. Um, I, all right, I'll I'll say this. I have not from from the little bit I have seen of Mike Williams, he seems like a very impressive wide receiver. That said, and we've, I think we've discussed this on the podcast before. It's, I know it's a point that, that bo- I think both of us have made in print, which is as smart as the Falcons' decision to go get Julio Jones in 2012 looks now because they're in the Super Bowl, and as great as Julio Jones has been since he got into the league, they missed the playoffs the middle three years of his career. They they went to the NFC Championship game. 2011, by the way. Okay, 2011, excuse me. So which they only went to the, furthers your... Argument. Right. They, they went to the playoffs, I believe, his first two years, including the NFC Championship game his second year. Then he got hurt his third year. And apart from that, their defense went south. Yes. They missed the playoffs three straight years. Their defense went south, I would argue, in part, because they gave up five draft picks in the 2011 draft to go get Jones. Which well, here's the, here was the, here was the trade. Um, man, the Browns. Yeah, Browns trade everybody. Yeah. Um, he, Julio Jones was traded by the Browns as the number six overall pick to the Falcons for um, their number tw- for the Falcons' number twenty six overall pick in that draft. Just their, give us the picks. Forget their the names second round. Of who they turned out to be um, number twenty six overall, number fifty nine overall, a fourth rounder, one eighteen overall, another fourth rounder, one twenty four overall, and. A 2012 first round pick, which turned out to be number 22 overall. Okay, that's a that's more than the Eagles gave up for. Yes, for Carson Wentz. That's uh, so, probably about equivalent. All right, so so here would my point be: I think a lot of people think about that trade and look at it and say, "Well, the Browns didn't get anybody. They did not. <laughs> they didn't get anybody good. So therefore, the Falcons won the trade." Still, right. Having said that, it's not about who the Browns, right. as an incompetent franchise, took. It's about the fact that the Falcons gave up five chances to help their defense in order to get Julio Jones. Now, maybe they miss on those picks anyway. Maybe by not having Julio Jones, they don't get to the Super Bowl this year and the playoffs the first two years. But it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, you've got to pay whatever you've got to pay to go get a Julio Jones or a Mike Williams. There's going to be a cost exacted out of that. In fact, I would argue, I think, that the Julio Jones trade, if looked at from the intellectually honest perspective is is the argument for why the Eagles should not trade up for mm-hmm. Mike Williams, let alone the fact that I don't think Mike Williams is on that level. Like if he was AJ Green, if he was Julio mm-hmm. Jones, if he was, uh, you know, even Amari Cooper, um, 
you know, I could maybe understand it. Like, I loved AJ Green. Mm-hmm. I loved Julio Jones coming out. But you have to keep in mind, at the time of that trade, nobody knows if Julio Jones is going to be Julio Jones or if right. he's going to be Justin Blackman or, you know, any of them. Right. Any of the other top 10. Nelson Aguilar, whoever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, just like the Browns don't know whether. But if you look at it and say those five picks that they gave up and that one pick that the Atlanta Falcons are getting, you know, if you assume the same amount of risk for each one of those picks, you know, what What if What if Atlanta drafted three serviceable defensive starters right. with those five picks versus Julio Jones as he is now? Mm-hmm. That, I think that's kind of the... Yeah, that's the calculus you have to... You know, I mean, what was it? Like, let's say, um, let's use Eagles for example. Okay. Let's say, um, you have Julio Jones as he turned out to be mm-hmm. versus um, Jordan Hicks, um, Benny Logan, and Rodney McLeod. And yeah, no, but I'm trying to think about guys they drafted. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, say, I don't know, Brandon, Brandon Graham. Brandon Graham. Like, are the Eagles a better team with? Julio Jones, as he turned out now, or those three players and the receiver they actually do have now? I would argue that... It's, it's hard to tell. I, don't I think, think it's not hard to tell. I think that there's no way you the, could take those three players off the Eagles' defense and have them mm-hmm. been able to stop anybody this year. Okay. It doesn't matter how many... Okay. I mean, what right, do you say? What do you, you know what I'm saying? No, I see how you're making the calculation there. If you just re- pluck them out and replace them. Right. Yeah. Um, like, you can only pick one. You can either have, you know... Or you could even make a more parallel comparison and, and take all those guys that were drafted in the same draft. And that's, uh, what was that? Uh, Logan Kendricks. And yeah. And, um, Cox or is Cox? Yes. Cox was in that draft. Yeah. yeah. Like think about it. Think yeah. about it from that perspective. Yeah. All of a sudden you're not stop. I mean, they didn't stop anybody as it was for most of the season. Now they're not stopping anybody right. at all. And I think that's my, and I'm a huge proponent of the wide receiver position. I think that's one of the big reasons why Andy Reid was negligent mm-hmm. as a general manager. And one of the, big reasons why the Eagles did not end up you know, the Super Bowl competing for more Super yeah. Bowls when they should have is because he just did not prioritize that position at all. And when they did, they they did not scout it well. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, that that was always a weird thing. I don't know how you felt about this, but that was always a weird blind spot to me with respect to Joe Banner, who could be very smart about mm-hmm. a lot of things. He always framed it. He and Andy always framed that philosophy as if you look at teams that win Super Bowls, they don't get a lot of production out of their wide receivers. And that, to me, was always the wrong way to frame it. Just because a wide receiver isn't necessarily as productive as, say, a Terrell Owens or you know a Marvin Harrison doesn't necessarily mean that he can't get open and make a big catch well, like, and isn't a good player when you need him to be a good player. I mean, the case in point there is Plaxico Burris. Right. Yeah. Like, he was always my argument. Like, if the Eagles had a Plaxico Burris, they would have gone to more than one Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever. It's not, like you, it's not like you look at... Oh, if you get your wide receiver 80 catches, therefore, you know, that is indicative of you getting closer to winning a Super Bowl. It's not about that. It's it's about Kevin Curtis can get 80 catches in a season and did for the Eagles. Is Kevin Curtis the guy you are absolutely throwing the ball to when you absolutely need a first down in a crucial it's game? That, that was the thing. It was the yeah. red zone and when you need first downs. Yeah. And when you just have a day where your offense is not doing what it needs to do and your quarterback just has to, like, right. sling it in there. Exactly. You know? Um, I would actually, I, I suspect, and I haven't put a, too much thought into this, but I think that the value of a wide receiver of Jones, AJ Green's ilk, because you know, think about it; those guys have not won right 
Super Bowls. And, and you know, the Patriots and Seahawks, and even the Giants to a certain extent. Who who was the who are their receivers in those? Two? I guess Burris was Burris one, was but he one, was towards the end of his career. And uh, Cruz was was their number okay. one guy. But in l- well, let's let's say Seahawks and Patriots. Okay. You know, um, you know they they kind of had the same t- mold right. of pass catchers. Yes. And I think what I'm trying to say is, as the spread offense has become more prevalent, and and nickel and dime sets have become more prevalent, mm-hmm. you can find better matchups further down in the progression you know, with right. a number three receiver versus, right. I think the slot, re- the slot receiver has become more important yes. now than back in the day. Cause the nickel is a guy that, you know, you can take advantage of a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I don't think it would be a bad idea for the Eagles to get one, but I think that the cornerback using the same logic mm-hmm. has become much more important now because yeah. you need a, you know, three or four quality right. cornerbacks, which I think if you look at the Patriots this year, you'll find, Obviously, if you look mm-hmm. at the Seahawks, you'll find, and, and I think you know the Falcons. That's one of their big question marks heading yeah. into this. Super oh, Bowl. absolutely! I, and to to kind of play that out, you know, if you're the Eagles, and we and we discussed this, I think a couple weeks ago, you know, yes, I would agree about the importance of the cornerback position. And then the flip side of that is, as you see more teams playing nickel and dime coverages, at what point does it become a league wide trend to do what the Cowboys exactly. and the Falcons and the Steelers have done, which is say, you know what? Yeah, we can throw the ball when we need to throw it, and we can throw it with anybody, but we're going to hand the ball to Le'Veon Bell or Ezekiel Elliott or you know the, the best running back combination in the league so that we're keeping you know a defense off balance the entire time. You went out and signed all these nickel cornerbacks. Well, you, don't, you can't even use them because we're going to hand the ball to Devontae Freeman and Le'Veon Bell and Elliott all the time, and you're just getting, you know road graded for 60 minutes of football exactly and i think that we have talked about that you know life when does is, the life is a life is a pendulum yeah. Yeah. and i think we're starting you're starting to see it swing back right like you said with Le'Veon bell with um uh elliot elliot Freeman. and even with lagara sure Blount this year and the, yeah. pa- the patriots, the patriots are, can can shove it down your throat when they need to um well i mean i i don't know if i would put it in that explicit term shove it but uh, uh I'm here frantically searching for something that I've printed out, but I don't really need to, and I can't find it. But it speaks to your point. Matt Ryan talking at Media Day, I believe it was. Yes, I think so. He, I think said, I what you're he said something to the effect of most teams don't have one, one running back on the caliber or on par with our two, meaning Devontae Freeman and right. Tevin Coleman. Right. And I don't think I need to ask this question, but because there's two of us in this room I'm going to, do you think the Eagles had one running back on par with Tevin Coleman? No. Okay, thank you. No. No, 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 no. And I think that, again, if you're looking at the calculus that that the Eagles need to compute or compute to get to the next level, if you were to say you can either have a Julio Jones-ish wide receiver out of this draft or you can have a running back and a cornerback out of this draft, I would say you are a better team with, you know, an every down running back an every down ish running back and a starting cornerback than you would be with a Mike Williams. I agree. I, I, I agree with that. I, I mentioned as much in a column last week, I wrote about Jason Kelsey where, you know, if I were the Eagles, I would look hard at replacing Kelsey because 
if you're going to run a more conventional offense under Doug Peterson than you did under Chip Kelly, you need a more conventional center. And Kelsey is smaller. He's not somebody who's going to win a lot of battles at the point of attack along the line of scrimmage. Uh, and even if you get a terrific running back, stumble across one in the draft, make a priority of signing one, whatever, however you get it, uh, he's not cut out to, to block the way you would need a line to block at this point. And if you could upgrade there, if I were them, I would. Um, but I, I think you're right. You know, I think that, that that's something that is going to – I'm really curious to see in the league as you move forward. Um, because you've also got this, I feel like – this kind of gap, a little bit of a gap between, I'm talking about an age mostly, in elite quarterbacks versus those who are kind of on the rise. You know, there's there's Brady still at the top of his game, Rodgers still at the top of his game, Matt Ryan finally getting to a Super Bowl, uh, Eli Manning starting to wind down a little bit, I guess, but they're all 30-plus. And then you've got the young guys who, you know, people think are going to develop and continue to be, you know, grow into something great, whether it's Jameis Winston, Carson Wentz, Marcus Mariota, Derek Carr, those kind of guys. It's kind of a, a you know, either-or sort of thing in the league now. And I wonder if, um, you know, an accent on the running game will come about be, as these teams try to help those younger quarterbacks kind of grow and develop. I mean, I think it would go a long Everybody talks about the Eagles getting wide receivers and weapons for Wentz. I think it would go a long way to helping him if he could just turn around and hand the ball off to one or two running backs 20 to 25 to 30 times a game between the two of them. That would go a long way to helping. And I don't think either one of us, I don't want to speak for you, so I'll just speak for me. I am not advocating that they spend, you know, even a top three round pick on a running back, but I'm saying they need one and mm-hmm. they need one in a way that I don't know that philosophically they thought they needed one going into the bat this past season because the conventional wisdom was well Doug Peterson and Andy Reid yeah excuse me Doug Peterson and Andy Reid showed how overvalued the running back position is in 2015 when Jamal Charles went down right. and they made do with Spencer Ware and Shark Kendrick West to that I would say clearly. Somebody did a good scouting job on Spencer Ware because he is a good running back. Yeah. Wendell Smallwood is not Spencer Ware, no. at least not from what we saw last year. I mean, no, and it, and it's a it's a different kind of offense as well. You have Alex Smith, who is a smart, established quarterback, who is physically limited in certain regards, um, but is capable of rolling out of the pocket, keeping the ball in his own, uh, and doing some things that Wentz really doesn't do quite as well, or you don't want him doing. So, so there's that. And, you know, they ran the ball. The Eagles ran the ball a fair amount last year. I mean, Wentz threw it a ton, but they also ran it a fair amount. But they could have run it more if they had wanted to. I think we all went into the season thinking, like, they're going to run the ball yeah. a ton. Or I at think least my, they should. I think my point, my, my thought process here is more the type of running back. Yeah. Where there was, there's, this, there's been this notion that you can cobble together the position with different guys with different right. skill sets, i.e., Darren Sproles as your kind of third down, you know, scat back, whatever, change of pace guy with Ryan Matthews as your one cut first down kind of downhill runner, you know, and then with Ken, you know, sprinkle in, mix in, whatever. Right. Um, Smallwood and Kenyon Barnes. I think what this year showed us from the Eagles perspective and also from around the league is the, uh, there is a tremendous amount of value in having a guy Mm -hmm. who is capable of being, I go back to that two point conversion attempt in Baltimore where everybody asked why was Byron Marshall on the field well 
put this way, you need a guy who can play every down, who can who can be on the field in that down and not have the defense know what you're going to do. Right. We saw that with Le'Veon Bell, Devontae Freeman, you know, Ezekiel Elliott. And I'm not saying you can't I'm saying you can get that in the later rounds of the draft. Jordan Howard I believe was on the board when the Eagles mm-hmm. drafted Wendell Smallwood. If not, he he you know they could have got trade easily traded up in the fifth round to get him. Right. He's a completely different type of runner from Wendell Smallwood. You know, I mean Wendell Smallwood is more of the you know ten to twelve carry guy. Yeah. You know, straight up and down, not going to knock anybody over. You know, I, yeah, I think you're right, and I, and it's I'm really going to be curious to see because I do think that they are committed to however they define it trying to quote unquote get Wentz weapons to help him like that is the primary with the exception of getting a cornerback that is the primary focus of this offseason I think that's coming from Jeffrey Lurie I think that's you know whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing I think that's what Lurie wants so I think that's what they're going to do and so let's see how that plays out there's a ton more need I think that the Eagles can win without adding a game-breaking wide receiver I don't think they can win without adding a cornerback without adding a running back, without adding some offensive linemen. Right. And I think, again... And just so I don't misunderstand you and the listeners don't misunderstand you, by saying you you think the Eagles can win without a game-breaking wide receiver, you mean that they don't need to... They need to upgrade what they have now, but not so yeah. substantially that they need the mortgage draft picks to do it. I don't even think they need to mortgage a first or, first or second-round mm-hmm. draft okay. pick to do it. You know, I think that... I mean, again... again Julio Jones, the factuals almost, the counterfactuals kind of like negate the factuals at this point. We're like, yeah, Julio Jones is great. It'd be awesome, mm-hmm. you know, if the Eagles could have something like that and the Falcons are in the Super Bowl, but they only got to the Super Bowl after they added Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman and fortified the offensive line right. around Julio Jones. And I think, you know, case by case with all these great wide receivers we're seeing like Odell Beckham it's very you can take a wide receiver out of a game Antonio mm-hmm. Brown you can take a wide receiver out of the game AJ Green you can take a wide receiver out of the game DeAndre Hopkins you can take a wide right. receiver out of the game uh I mean I think Odell Beckham more than anything where even in games where he tears it up I mean Antonio Brown tore it up against the Eagles and yeah. the Eagles still won that game right um and I think that would have been more of Joe Banner's argument mm-hmm. you know looking back yeah. where in terms of like actual utility right um I think in some ways a, a great wide receiver is like a closer on a baseball team where, you know, it could put you over the top. Yeah. It, but you, there are a lot of other positions where you absolutely can't win anything if you don't have. Right. Does that make no, sense? No, it does make sense. I mean, I, I think it's it's the kind of thing that you don't need unless you absolutely need it. Right. If that, you know, if that and makes sense. I also think it's the type of thing where if one is there. Sure. You take, like. Like the Giants are the perfect example. Yeah, where I'm sure they did not go into that draft planning on taking a wide receiver. No, but they here pl- he is. Yeah, you they know, for the same reason. The, yeah, for the same reason the Packers ended up with Aaron Rodgers. Right. Exactly. You know, ask Andrew Brand about that story. He's happy to tell it about everybody looking around the draft room and at the Packers in 2005 and saying, "How can we pass on this guy? We have Brett Favre, but it's Aaron Rodgers. Like he should be the first pick in the draft, and we all know it. How do we not take him?" You know, and so they take them, and and there you are. That would be a fun exercise to do. Let's do that real quick. You say something. I'm going to look up the players that the Packers could have taken that they probably needed more than Aaron (laughs) Rodgers. Um. All right. Well, what am I else going to say? uh, Pimp something you're writing. Well, not well. You're you're hard at work over there, biting your fingernails, writing a column that's going to run on Friday. It's going to run Friday. I spent last week. The reason I wasn't on the podcast 
uh, not to say I was missed because I'm sure I wasn't. Um, was you I were spent, here last week? This is what I'm saying. So I was in central New York for three days with Matt Martucci, the radio voice of the St. Joe's Hawks men's basketball team, who's a great guy uh, in his early 30s. And every year for the last four years or so, uh, he has brought his father, Bill, along on a road trip that he takes with the Hawks. Um, Bill is suffering from Parkinson's disease, and this is a chance for Matt, who uh, you know maybe sees his mom and dad maybe once a month, uh, if that, to spend some time with them. So I went with them on this trip. We went up to Olean, New York, had dinner at the only Applebee's in Olean, New York, uh, and it happened to be karaoke night, which is always fun. Uh, so while Matt was calling St. Joe's Bonaventure, and then we drove northeast to Hamilton, New York, uh, where Matt called Colgate Lehigh for CampusInsiders.com and the Patriot League Network. And then drove home. So that was a lot of fun. That piece is going to run Friday. And yes, I was agonizing over it because, you know, it was longer than I usually write. And a story like that, you want to you want to make sure you get it right. Matt Martucci, good guy. Terrific guy. I played, used to play basketball at Matt Martucci. Yeah, yeah, he mentioned When he worked at Comcast. He said you would never pass him the ball. Uh, I don't pass to anybody. Uh, okay. Um, so here are the players. <laughs> First of all, here are the players that people passed on who did not need Aaron Rodgers. Okay. Uh these are the p- four picks leading up to him. Uh, Dallas took Marcus Spears, who had a solid he had a oh, solid yeah. career. Uh, Jacksonville needed a wide receiver, and they took Matt Jones. Mm. Baltimore needed a wide receiver more than a quarterback, and they took Mark Clayton. And uh, the Raiders needed a defensive back more than a quarterback. That was pre-Flacco. The Ravens yes. needed a quarterback then, too. Uh, and they took Fabian Washington. And then the picks right after Aaron Rodgers, were the players still on the board were Jason Campbell. Uh, Chris Spencer, a center who played in, who started six seasons, I guess. Roddy White, solid player. Luis, oh, oh yeah. Luis Castillo, the defensive end, not the former second baseman. Former second baseman. Uh, Marlon Jackson, who I believe was not a fish. No, he was he, an eagle for a brief period of time and never. You know played what? For You're them. right. He was. He never was one of those safeties them. that they uh, they tried to tried and failed yeah, with. Spackle. The Here's spot. a question: Who did the Eagles take that year? They took him at 31 and the oh five Rogers. Uh, Rodgers went at 24 to the uh, Mike Patterson. Yes, yes. So, but, like, that's the case in point where, you know, yeah. if, if the Eagles are on the clock at 24, you know, they have Donovan McNabb, but... Oh, could you imagine Donovan's <laughs> reaction if the Eagles had taken Aaron Rodgers? <laughs> well, what oh year did they take, well, take... It wasn't too long after that. They, they, they took, took Kevin Cobb. Right. And, and they he, might have taken him that year, actually. Uh, I think it was 07. Okay. I think they took Cobb oh, yeah. in 07. But, uh... Anyway, so if there's one thing you kids can take away from this podcast today, it's don't pass on Aaron Rodgers, no matter who you have at the quarterback position. Sounds good. And until next week, see ya. Yeah. (laughs) Until next week, what? Until next week.